Luke 19. A few weeks ago, Hollywood hosted the Academy Awards. Every year, movie stars set aside a day to show the world how wonderful they are by taking turns giving each other awards. But even for those who have not been nominated for an Academy Award, it is still, for most of them, the most important day of the year, not just socially, but for their careers. These celebrities and their public relations agents go to great lengths to make certain that they are noticed. They want to grab as much attention as they can. For most of Hollywood, the highlight of the day is not what goes on inside the building, but walking the red carpet as they slowly parade into the building. And there they are playing to the cameras and the media and the public goes crazy for this stuff. People want to know who is wearing what, who is on the arm of whom. And these stars do everything they can to be noticed. They wear the most elaborate gowns. They wear expensive jewelry. They do their hair up just so, all to grab the limelight so that all eyes will be turned on them. Now, as strange as this may sound, compare that to Jesus. When Jesus healed a man of his leprosy, Jesus said to him, See that you don't tell anyone. To the blind man to whom he gave the miracle of sight, he said, See that no one knows of this. To the demon-possessed man who called out to Jesus, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus said to that demon-possessed man, be quiet. Jesus did not seek to be noticed. His ministry wasn't conducted on the red carpet. He did most of his work outside the big city of Jerusalem, far from the pomp and ceremony of the temple. He preferred to do his work in villages, and in fields as he traveled, and all the while avoiding the limelight. He avoided the shouts of praise. He dissuaded people from revealing who he is. That is, until today. On this day, the day that we have come to call the triumphal entry, or Palm Sunday. Jesus enters Jerusalem, and the crowds greet him with great celebration. The people shout praises to God. They welcome Jesus as the coming and anointed king. They sang hymns from the Psalms. They laid branches and cloaks before him, and they are filled with excitement. But unlike days past, when Jesus avoided the limelight, here he allows the people to celebrate. He even encourages it. 
Because this was a time for celebration. Because this was a moment designed and orchestrated by God and foretold by the prophets long ago. It was a time of great hope and expectation. Jesus knew and the people believed that this was a moment that was packed with tremendous meaning. Here they knew they were standing on the brink of a pivotal moment, a pivotal moment in world history. As Jesus entered Jerusalem, all of history would turn on the events that would occur in Jerusalem this week. During the next few days, the world would be changed forever. Thousands of people followed Jesus into Jerusalem. Many more stood along the road that led from the Mount of Olives and then down in and then down the Mount of Olives and then up into Jerusalem. They had seen, they had heard of the many great things he had done. The miracles that only someone who had been sent by God could perform. And now many believed that this was their coming Messiah the one who would free them from the oppression of the Romans, who would institute a new kingdom in Israel and restore the nation to its former glory. Their sights were set on a military conqueror. They were looking for a mighty king. But they should have recognized that playing out before them was a living parable Jesus' arrival was full of meaning. It was full of promise, but according to God's plan, not man's expectations. Jesus rode into Jerusalem, but he didn't come on a mighty war horse. He came on a lowly donkey that was known to be a symbol of peace. Jesus had not come to Jerusalem to overthrow the Romans or to incite a rebellion. Jesus had come to Jerusalem for one reason. He came to die. He came to give his life as a ransom for many so that he could free all who were held in bondage, not bondage to the Romans, but held in bondage to sin and to death. And so the people, although they did not understand the true meaning or the magnitude of this moment, they celebrate and they praise God. And Jesus knew it was not only right to celebrate, but they must celebrate and joyfully praise God. But as we might expect, as we look into the crowds this morning, Among the many who are celebrating, there are some among the crowds who are long-faced, who do not want to hear celebration, and they are the self-centered Pharisees. These Pharisees, without one ounce of joy in their hearts, stride over to Jesus, and they begin to scold Jesus. They say to him, Rabbi, teacher, Rebuke your disciples. 
You see, they, they want Jesus to put an end to all this celebrating. But Jesus says they must celebrate. They must give glory to God. Because if they keep quiet, the stones themselves will cry out. Today, as we join these people on the road to Jerusalem, and we worship and celebrate our Savior, we need to make sure that we do not give the Pharisees their way. We must not let anyone, we must not let anything prevent us from worshiping the King. Because if we don't cry out, the stone, And let's understand that being substituted by rocks is not a flattering prospect. Can you imagine what that would say about our hearts? If the very thing that we as believers are called to do, which is to worship our Lord and Savior, if we don't do that, if we were substituted by rocks, think what that would say about our hardened hearts. As we revisit Christ's triumphal entry, I suggest we ask ourselves a question, each of us. Will I praise the Lord or will, will I let rocks do it for me? I believe the answer is a simple one because this day, Palm Sunday, is a day for celebration. Before we look at the text, Let's recognize something. Today marks the beginning of what is referred to as the Passion Week. You've heard that term, right? The Passion Week? It begins today, the day that Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Palm Sunday. And it extends through the most important day on the Christian calendar, Resurrection Sunday. It was with Christ's resurrection that he gives assurance that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. As the Passion Week begins today, there's a question that may have occurred to you, but you may never have thought to ask. Why is it called the Passion Week? Why do we refer to the Passion of the Christ? Well, the first thing we need to bear in mind is that words have a way of changing over time, don't they? In our modern usage, the word passion or passionate is most often used to describe intense feelings of desire. For example, the Hollywood movie stars that we mentioned earlier, they might appear in a passionate love scene. And so based on our modern usage, it's odd for us to think of the passion of the Christ. But to understand why this term is used, we need to know that our word passion is derived from the Latin word passio. And the Latin word passio means suffering. Therefore, when we speak about the passion of the Christ, we are talking about the suffering of the Christ. 
When Jesus announced to his 12 disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, he very clearly told them he was going there to suffer, to be killed. But on the third day, he would rise again. Today, as we mark the day called Palm Sunday, and Jesus enters the holy city, it is the beginning of his passion. Let's pick up the text, please, at Luke 19, verse 37. Luke 19, verse 37. Then, as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. The first thing we will want to notice is that this crowd of disciples descends the Mount of Olives, and they are heading toward Jerusalem. And as they do, the people are charged with excitement. The city and all the surrounding villages outside the big city of Jerusalem, they are packed with people who have traveled from throughout Israel into Jerusalem for the upcoming Passover celebration. The Passover being the celebration of when Moses delivered Egypt. Israel from Egypt. And each and every day, there are more people flooding into Jerusalem. And here in Jerusalem, Israel would worship at the temple, and they would sacrifice the Passover lamb. As people marched with Jesus or lined up along the road, we can imagine the roar of the people as they are greeting Jesus' arrival. The ancient Jewish historian, Josephus, estimated that the crowds lining the streets into Jerusalem may have numbered as high as three million people. Word had spread Jesus was coming, and people want to greet their coming king. And as Jesus rode toward Jerusalem, people covered the roads with branches, with palms, with cloaks. Why? Because this was the sort of welcome that was reserved for the arrival of a conquering king. And as they marched with Jesus, believing they were arriving in the holy city with the Messiah, the anointed one of God, they were praising the Lord. As we know, the crowds, even those who are described here as disciples, are under the impression that Jesus will be for them a political Messiah, a Savior who will vanquish the Romans and restore the nation of Israel to its former glory. But even though, listen, even though the people are celebrating for the wrong reason, Jesus will let them celebrate. He will encourage them to praise God because Jesus knows that he is there because he is about to fulfill the divine plan that was laid out from before the beginning of the foundation of the world. 
He had come to die. He will serve as the perfect Passover lamb. He has come to Jerusalem to give his life, to set you and me free from the bondage of sin and death for all who would believe in him. And for that, and for so much more, he is worthy to be praised. Notice the enthusiasm of the crowd. They don't wait for Jesus to arrive in the city. The text tells us that as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the celebration had already begun. Jesus is now on a steep road that comes down the Mount of Olives. From the top of the Mount of Olives, which is literally a mountain covered with olive trees, it's a huge grove of olive trees. From the top of the Mount of Olives, there is a spectacular view of Jerusalem, about a half a mile away as the crow flies. Jerusalem sits on top of another mountain, Mount Moriah. But Mount Moriah is not a peaked mountain. It is a plateau. It is a flattened mountain, and on top of it sits the city of Jerusalem. So Jesus will need to descend the Mount of Olives, go through the Kidron Valley, and then go up to Jerusalem. In the Bible, whenever we hear of people going to Jerusalem, it doesn't matter from what direction they're coming from. We always read they're going up to Jerusalem because it sits on the top of a mountain, a plateau. As the crowds travel with Jesus, these people are excited with expectation. The end of verse 37 says, The whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. Many of the people who were traveling with Jesus had seen with their own eyes the many miracles he had done. And thousands more had heard of his great power. And so they lined the roads leading into Jerusalem to greet him. Notice also that while the crowd was praising God, it is qualified, this group is qualified, the ones who are traveling with Jesus, by the word disciples. It says, the whole crowd of disciples were joyfully praising God. Now we need to be cautious here. Because the word disciples does not necessarily mean believers. The word disciple literally means student or learner. Judas was referred to as a disciple, but he never surrendered his heart to Christ. He never believed in Jesus. And so many, like Judas, were following Jesus conditionally. In effect, they were saying to themselves, If this Jesus will do what I want, if he will meet my expectations, then I will give him my support. But if he doesn't come through for me, 
If he doesn't live up to my expectations, well, I'm going to look for another. This type of conditional disciple is much different than Jesus' true disciples. True disciples such as Peter, who said to Jesus, Lord, to whom shall we go? You are the one who has the words of life. And so we know that many who are among this crowd, who are marching into Jerusalem with Jesus, shouting his praises, were not his true disciples. In just a few days, many would stand in the courtyard of Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea, and about Jesus they would shout out, crucify him. And why would they turn on Jesus so quickly? Well, it's quite simple, actually. He was not the Messiah they wanted. They wanted a political Messiah who would save them from the Romans. But in truth, he had come to save them, but to save them from their sin. He had come not to wage war against the Romans, but to die on a Roman cross. As Jesus approaches Jerusalem, he knows the true purpose of his mission. And he also knew that it was right for the people to rejoice and to celebrate and to praise God. Even if the people were celebrating for the wrong reason, it was still right for them to praise God. Because if the people didn't cry out, In celebration, Jesus will soon say, even the stones will cry out. And why were these people rejoicing? Why were they praising God? Well, the answer is clearly given. They were praising God for all the mighty works, meaning all the miracles they had seen. And so fresh in their minds was the raising of Lazarus raising Lazarus from the dead. Fresh on their minds was the healing of people who suffered from blindness and leprosy. They had seen Jesus feeding thousands of people with just a few loaves and fishes, and they decided, this will be our king. This will be the man to lead us into battle. He had done so many miracles. So many miracles, in fact, that the gospel writer John writes that if every one of Jesus' miracles were written down, the whole world would not contain enough room for all the books that would need to be written. And listen, there should be no difference for us. We ought to praise God for all the miracles we have seen. Well, somebody might say, well, gee, I, I don't know that I've ever really seen a miracle. You want to see a miracle? Look around you. Look around you. The simple fact that you are sitting here in this church today on a Palm Sunday is a miracle in itself. Don't think it is a natural thing for you to be here today. Oh, your heart would normally desire to be in front of the TV or at the mall or watching golf. It is not a natural thing for us to be here. God had to move heaven and earth for you to be here. And if you have put your heart, your faith in Jesus Christ, 
If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, that is a result not of your decision, but of God's miraculous power. Here's another miracle. Here's another miracle. Two for one today. When we come to this place and we lift up our voices in prayer, when we sing from our hearts, I believe that God uses that moment to put Satan in his place. I picture God taking Satan by the scruff of the neck and saying to Satan, look at them worship. Behold, they worship. You know why God does that? Because that is not our natural state to worship God. What is our natural state? Our natural state is to be our own God. Well, that's a miracle when we worship him. In my mind, when we worship, that is the evidence that God has the power to change hearts. Please don't think you haven't seen any miracles. Look around you. And if we recognize that God does miracles and is still doing miracles today, then we can picture ourselves among the true disciples who traveled with Jesus into Jerusalem. Not the conditional disciples, the true disciples. And we sing with them, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. This phrase comes from the 118th Psalm. George read from it earlier at the opening of the service. From the 118th Psalm, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. The pilgrims coming into Jerusalem sang this lyric from the psalm to mark the occasion. And let's remember the psalms were inspired by God. And so as the people were coming into Jerusalem, they were singing the heart of God as God prepared hearts for the coming of the king. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. The people of Israel, they wanted to see a warrior king, a conqueror of armies. Check it. One day Jesus Christ will arrive as a warrior king, and he will lift his powerful sword to defeat the armies of Satan. Book of Revelation. But first, the king comes not as a conqueror of armies, but a conqueror of hearts. And by his grace, it is why Jesus did not surround himself with soldiers. Instead, he chose as his disciples fishermen, and farmers, and tax collectors. He attracted as his followers the blind and the lame, the world's misfits, the world's outcasts. Why? Because these would be the ones who would truly worship him in spirit and in truth. If we too, you and I, if we realize that God has called us, not because we were mighty, but because we were broken, and in need of healing. If we realize that God called us not because we were worthy, but because we were in need of grace, we are the ones who are ready 
to worship Him. Because if we don't, stones will cry out. As the celebration builds, the crowds now sing another verse in their inspired song. They also sing, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Notice the trajectory. They're singing, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now that should sound somewhat familiar because it's very similar to the song that was sung by the heavenly host of angels when the angels came to announce the birth of Christ to the shepherds. Those angels sang, peace on earth, goodwill to men, and glory in the highest. And so once again, these pilgrims coming into Jerusalem, they're quoting God's word from the Psalms. And we will conclude that they are singing this line They are singing this line in response to the message that came from heaven long ago because they believe that they are on the threshold of a brand new day because they are on the threshold of a day where the world would change forever. You see, in many ways, the crowds misunderstood the reason for Christ's coming, but they were right about one thing. And no one could deny it, not even the most ardent denier or critic of Christ. The world changed on that day when Jesus arrived in Jerusalem. And so they are calling out to heaven, peace in heaven. The angels said, peace on earth. The pilgrims said, peace in heaven. And why is that? Because Jesus came to make peace between God and man. For those who worship Christ, because we have put our faith in him, there is now peace in heaven and on earth. So I'm asking you this morning, do you realize that part of our calling is to send blessings into heaven And when we talk about sending blessings, we're talking about our sacrifice of praise. We're talking about our words of thanksgiving. We respond to the angels who wished us peace. And we are to respond to the angels by saying, peace to you. Why? Because Christ has come. We acknowledge that Jesus Christ and Christ alone is the only one who can bring peace peace to mankind for those who believe. And for that reason, we must praise God. If we don't, you know what will. The stones will cry out. And so here we are then, the disciples of Jesus, we're following him along with these people from the past, and they they and we are joyfully praising God. But notice, not everyone is prepared to praise God. Let's look at verse 39, please. Some of the Pharisees call to him from the crowd, Rabbi, teacher, Rebuke your disciples. 
Now, why are they crying out like that? They want Jesus to put an end to this celebration. Stop all this singing. Stop all this giving praise to God. But perhaps most of all, they wanted Jesus to stop the people from laying their cloaks and these palm branches down on the street as if he were some kind of king. But why? Why were the Pharisees objecting to the people celebrating the arrival of Jesus? Well, we could outline a bunch of reasons. One of the reasons, of course, is that the Pharisees would cry out, we have no king but Caesar. But one of the most egregious reasons is that these Pharisees were so confident in themselves, so confident in their supposed goodness, that they had no need for a Savior. Remember, at the core of Jesus' teaching, at the core of his gospel message was a call for repentance, right? Didn't he say, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand? The Pharisees were sure they had no reason to repent. They were the good ones. And so they had no use for Jesus. The Pharisees are the ones who make their hobby of looking and pointing out other people and praying, God, thank you, I'm not like those losers. The Pharisees were so self-righteous, so full of themselves, that they had no room in their heart for God. Now listen, for those who do not have God in their hearts, there's something also missing from their hearts. Joy. Joy. And so these joyless Pharisees basically were saying, if I'm going to be miserable... I want everyone else to be miserable. Put put a stop to all this celebrating, all this praising of God. Tell them to put down those palm branches and get serious. I heard a story about a woman who was traveling for business. And on Sunday during her business trip, she decided she would visit a church near her hotel. And she noticed right away that this church was not like her own. The people there were very gloomy. The singing was quite dull. And finally, the preacher went up to the pulpit to deliver his sermon, and there was no enthusiasm in his voice. But at one point, he did say something that got her excited, and without thinking, she called out, Praise Jesus! Well, the people were startled and they looked at her across empty pews and they said to her, we don't praise Jesus here. And so the visitor responded, I didn't think so. You see, there will always be people who are like Pharisees, even in churches, who think that doing church means being long-faced and solemn who think that because there's so much hardship in the world that we've got no business being joyful or praising God or lifting our voices in song. Let's look finally at verse 40 to see what Jesus says, not about such people, but to such people. He says, he answered and said to them, 
I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Jesus would tell us here this morning that if we don't praise him, and if we don't praise him from the bottom of our hearts, the stones in the ground that are beneath our feet will rise up and the stones will worship Jesus. And so I ask you again this morning, are you going to let rocks take your place in praising God? Me neither. If those people who were on the Jerusalem road could celebrate the coming king, and they barely understood why Jesus has come, how much more should we celebrate? We who know that Jesus Christ came for the sacrifice of He sacrificed him sin for the remission of sin, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish, but have what? Everlasting life. How could we not worship? George was saying, or maybe it was Toby, he was saying earlier, we get so accustomed to to these celebrations that we tend to take them for granted. Let's not do that. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, he has marched into your heart. Praise him for doing that. He is so good, he is so powerful that he gave his life so that we could have everlasting life. We celebrate at such little things. Why do we take for granted that God has given us everlasting life? Let us lift up our voices. Let us lift up our hearts. If we this morning want to lift up our voices, if we want to lift up our palms and thank him, we're going to do it. We're not going to let a Pharisee, we're not going to let an unbelieving world hinder us. No stone is going to take our place. Amen? So let us worship finally with our final hymn, And let's not sing because we're supposed to. Let's sing from our hearts because we're thankful. Amen? Let's turn in our hymnals, please. George, come join me. 206, and I want you to sing loud. I want want us, I want God to hear us, and I want him to grab Satan by the scruff of the neck and say, Behold, they worship.